Morning, everyone. Um, so, uh, David had sort of tossed around a few ideas for what to cover for Advent and uh, was settled on the second half of Isaiah as a uh, subject for really for hope in time of darkness, in dark times. And um, I didn't even manage to do that. Was, uh, we, we actually went completely to the opposite direction to the first half of Isaiah. Um, but I am within Isaiah, so I'm sort of getting half marks there. And um, we started to look at the person of Hezekiah and his times. And over the past, really, month as I've been looking at him, um, discovered that He's someone that's lived in really dark times, and yet and withal, he's someone that reaches through and um, touches the hem of the garment. He really does just, um, there's much more to him than just another king of Israel. And um, I'm just going to start in the middle. And... um, Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you'd open our ears and our hearts to receive it, mix it with your Holy Spirit and your anointing. So this reading's from Isaiah 38, if you're following. I said, in the prime of my life, must I go through the, de- the gates of death? And must I buy- be robbed of the rest of my years? I said, I will not again see the Lord himself in the land of the living. No longer will I look on my fellow man or be with those who now dwell in the world. Like a shepherd's tent, my house has been pulled down and taken from me. Like a weaver, I've rolled up my life. He has cut me off from the loom. Day and night, you made an end of me. So, Hezekiah is one of the few faithful kings that we see coming along in David's line in Judah. And if you're following, you'll find his story in 2 Kings from 18 and 2 Chronicles from 29 and the first half of Isaiah with some overlap and repetition. And if you want to, you know, if you get bored with that, you can go on and you can look in the book of Job and you can look at Psalm 27 and you'll see where he comes from. But we're mainly going to Isaiah today. So Isaiah speaks into the late stages of the reign of King Uzziah, who's Hezekiah's great-grandfather, and then the following reigns of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. And um, Isaiah seems to have really easy access to the family. He seems to have some sort of royal connection because he's able to get a hold of Hezekiah and Ahaz quite easily whenever the time comes. Um, But Uzziah, whenever it all started, his shadow was massive in Judah. So he he ruled for 52 years and it was a really prosperous time. Remember that Judah was in the middle of the Fertile Crescent and the trade routes. And he was militarily strong and he did really well for the first 40 years of his life. The first 40 years of his reign, he was faithful. And then he becomes proud and he sins when he's older and he t- tries to take on this priestly role in the temple and he's struck down with uh, leprosy as he tries, to, he tries to sort of offer incense before the Lord with the proud heart. And um, he's struck with leprosy and a similar fate to Nadab, Abihu, and Miriam in the Exodus story whenever they speak against Aaron and, uh, and uh, Moses. And... Um, so he has to be banned from the temple. He co-regents with his son, Jotham, for the rest years of his life. He's hidden away from public. And the impact for the people of Judah must have been massive with that. Um, I, can't, I was trying to think of a, an actual current day comparison, but it, I, I just couldn't think of one. It was just like a, it's like a spiritual earthquake. And it was an earthquake during Uzziah's years, but it's nothing compared to the actual what happened in the temple in that day. And um, Isaiah starts speaking then, speaking into the nation, whenever the nation's still drifting on the good times. And um, 
started to think about when that time was for us and the best I could think of was just those years after the Good Friday Agreement, the end of the, end of the 90s. And you know, you were still at school, university every day, whatever. Your favorite band was still cutting edge. Good Friday Agreement was still fresh in our minds. Everyone was happy. It was before 9-11, it was before the forever wars, it was before the credit crunch, before the once in a generation recession. It's before asset stripping and mass addiction and austerity. It's before 2016. It's before 2020, whatever that meant for you. It's before stupidly powerful internet came along. It's before sexual confusion. It's before Syria. Before the cost of living crisis. It's before the, the, the normalization of suicide. There are lots of things back then that just seemed much better. But they were still there in the background, but maybe they're just more apparent now. And Isaiah starts speaking some home truths into that situation. He, he, he starts speaking an indictment on Judah. So he talks about the land being full of silver and gold, but all this superstition and divination, pagan customs, land being full of idols. And uh, he says that they don't know their father. There's corruption. They're not looking after the widows or the orphans. They love bribes. They've ruined his vineyard. And the plunder of the poor is in their houses, the, the elders' houses. And um, it's into that that he says, see sort of things, woe to the sinful nation. And then, worst of all, he, he says to the, the leaders, he says, hear the word of the Lord, rulers of Sodom. Listen, you people of Gomorrah. And I remember listening to Eugene Smith back in the day. And him talking about this, is, and it, you know, how it looked would have been Isaiah appearing in the temple one day and speaking this out, shouting this out during the middle of the, of the last years of Isaiah's reign. And uh, imagine saying that, imagine even shouting that in, in church, you leaders of Sodom, you know, it, it's just, it's really strong. And he, he talks about the external things that people are fixated on. He talks about all of the how eager they are to be seen given sacrifices and says, you know, why are you trampling my courts? Who's required this of you? You know, I didn't ask for this. He talks about the bangles and the necklaces and the iPhones and the jacket, the leather jackets and, you know, everything that, that, that people have just worked out that that's what life's about. You know, the, the, that's, and instead of that, he, he says that there's going to come this replacement of that stuff with a stench and ropes and baldness and sackcloth and branding and slavery. And the men are going to die by the sword and Zion's going to be brought into mourning. They have this really extravagant worship, but yet um, he says that incense is an abomination to me. That's one for Uzziah. You know, he just, he speaks right to the heart of the matter of, the, of what's going on, the pride in the nation. And um, spiritually, Isaiah sees Judah's already desolate. He just gives them a glimpse of their future. So from the sole of their foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness. There's only wounds and welts and open sores. Your country's desolate. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners. And there's judgment coming. It's only really a formality as to when. But as I get specific, chapter 5, he talks about the, the vineyard and the wild grapes. And he says that the wall's going to be broken down. There's coming death, deportation from the promised land. Isaiah is really dense as a book. You know, there's, you can get lost in it very easily. So I'm just going to have to pick out a lot of random verses just as they sort of appear to me. But um, he talks about the people that are coming. He says, death is going to expand its jaw. He's got this vision of the, the snake that's opening its mouth, unhinging it to, to swallow the, the prey. And uh, into it's going to descend the nobles and the masses and all their brothers and revelers. He lifts up this banner for the nations. Yahweh is lifting this up, but it's not a, a banner of anything good. It's saying, come and get us. Um, and he says, you know, he's whistling for those at the end of the earth to come. And here they come swiftly. The arrows are sharp. Bows are strung. Hooves of flint. The roar is like that of a lion. The roar like young lions growling as they take their prey. 
And yet uh, Isaiah is offering him an ultimatum. He's saying, repent all this time. He says, come now, let us settle matter. Though your sins are scarlet, they'll be white as snow. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good things of the land. But if you resist, you'll be devoured by the sword. And he has this message of hope that we can't forget. After he names the threat as Assyria, he's, he's going to say that Assyria is just an axe in the hand of Yahweh. He's just an axe that he's chosen to cut down the trees of the nations. He says, don't be afraid. Over and over he says, don't be afraid. And over and over in those first chapters of Isaiah, you're going to hear the words, a remnant will remain. And it's not going to be the end. And if you follow through chapter chapter 11, Isaiah's got some early promises and consolations there. Even though Jerusalem's going to be left like a bare tree trunk by this axe, there's still going to be a shoot from the, the stump of Jesse. And that one man's going to judge between the nations and settle disputes. Going to, they're going to beat their swords into plowshares. You know, their nation's not even going to train for war again. It's going to be that, the, the outbreak of peace. The mountain of the Lord's temple is going to be established as the highest of all mountains. All the nations will stream to it. And after he's washed away all the filth, He's going to put, out a, put a cloud on them by day and, and uh, fire by night. So it's going to be exactly like the Exodus, or it's going to look like the Exodus. Now Jotham, Jotham follows after Uzziah, co-regents obviously, as I said. Um, but he's, he, he orders his way before the Lord, but he's, he's different. I'd say he's notable more for what he doesn't do. So he, he allows this low-level idolatry at the high places and he never once goes into the temple himself he never once in his 16 years of his reign and Ahaz takes over and Ahaz takes the throne age 20 and Isaiah says infants rule over you and like who can run a country at 20 but anyway where Jotham's maybe reluctant to enter the temple Ahaz runs in the opposite direction he goes Full, full tilt into idolatry. So you see this Baal worship and Moloch worship and child sacrifice. And things escalate quickly for Ahaz, unfortunately for him. Since the uh, northern kingdoms, Isaiah, Syria come down against him. They team up, they conspire. And uh, they come against Judah and take some of the towns around Judah. And they lay siege to Jerusalem as well. And... Um, Whenever Ahaz goes out to fight, he loses 120,000 men, which is ridiculous. And he loses his own son, Measa. He didn't value his sons anyway, but, but he loses them. And Israel take 200,000 captive from Judah. They only were persuaded to release them after a prophet, Oded, speaks up. And Ahaz gets told by Isaiah during the siege very firmly that Assyria is going to come down and sort this out. Assyria is going to be God's razor in the situation. It's going to take away the problem of, Isaiah, of, of Israel rather and, and Syria. But uh, Ahaz is afraid to ask for a sign for this. And then Isaiah comes back to him with these series of prophetic names. Over the next few chapters from about 10 on, he talks about Sheer Jashub, which means a remnant will return. Over and over you'll hear that, a remnant will return. And Emmanuel, God is with us. And of course he says, Mahar Shahal Hashbaz, which means uh, haste to the spoil, the spoil that Assyria is going to make of Syria and uh, Israel. About a month ago, I had to step in very firmly with um, Scott and Aaron whenever I had to warn them that they couldn't name their boys Maher Shal Hashbaz. They couldn't both name their boys Maher Shal Hashbaz. Um, but it turned out they had girls, so there's no real reason to worry. <laughs> I felt a bit silly about that, so anyway. Um, Assyria's going to come down like a flood, on like a flood that's burst its banks. It's going to sweep away Syria and Israel, and it's going to come right up to the neck of Judah. 
So Ahaz might have been afraid of asking for signs, but he's not afraid to ask Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, for help. And he sends tribute to, king, to this king, and he says, I'm your servant and your son. Come and rescue me from Syria and Israel. And that's what happens. Tiglath-Pileser comes down. He helps him, annexes Israel, Damascus, and starts deporting all around him. Now it's about 732 B.C., but uh, Ahaz himself also is forced to pay tribute. He doesn't really know what he's got himself into. He's a fool. And um, Tiglath-Pileser starts off owning just Iraq. He ends his reign owning more or less the entire Middle East. And um, the empire runs things right the way down to Israel. So... Samaria gets taken eventually by, the, by his son Sargon, but Assyria, by that time, they've perfected their technique of colonizing. They've deport war crimes, deportations, colonizing areas. Really, by the time he's finished with them, they aren't really Israel anymore. And uh, the gods of the of faraway lands are being worshipped in Samaria by that time. So Ahaz is instrumental in getting Israel annexed and he also becomes the vassal king to, in the process and he's basically a lapdog the rest of his days. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't think that that's enough. He, he, he adopts the Syrian gods. He shuts the doors to the temple. He makes it its own, his, his own designs within the temple. Since he looks at a, at a particular altar when he's in Syria at an international summit and he sends back this picture to the, the priest Uriah and says, build this, build this Syrian altar for him. And he worships at it instead of the altar that was in the temple of the Lord. And uh, basically the, the temple becomes his own personal crystal ball. So he rules for 16 years and it must have been really long years. And before the final destruction of the north, Hezekiah comes to power, age 25, it's quite likely that he's a second son and might just then have had, that might have been the saving factor for him in that he wasn't exposed to his father as much. He might have had a bit more influence from people like uh, Israel, like uh, Isaiah. And the, the Hezekiah that you read of in Second Chronicles 30 is an ideal king. He does what's right in the, in the eyes of the Lord just like David does. He listens to the prophetic voices sets out to make a covenant with the Lord to have the anger turned from the people. He opens and repairs the, the temple doors. He gathers the priests and the Levites. He gets them to reconsecrate themselves. He cleans the temple. He restores normal service. Worship starts again. There hadn't been incense burned since Uzziah's days, but it starts again. He takes back the holy things that Ahaz had removed. He brings them back. He reconsecrates them. He throws out the things that Ahaz had brought in and introduced. And he starts dealing with idolatry. Takes away the high places. Takes away the sacred stones. And the Asherah pools. And um, in the absence of access to the temple, the people have been worshipping the bronze serpent that Moses had set up in the wilderness. They had kept it all these years and it was set up and they burned incense to it instead and it had become an idol to them. So he takes it away and he breaks it in pieces. So he's smiting a serpent. The author of Kings wants you to see that. You know, he's, um, that's the reverse of when you see Gideon setting up his ephod in, in Judges and it becomes an idol to the people. He's reversing that and he's releasing the people from the snare of idolatry. He's really digested a lot of what Isaiah has been preaching. You know, why wait until things are perfect for conditions of repentance? He's crushing the serpent. He's destroying idolatry. He's crushing the altar stones to pieces. You know, there's no Asherah poles left standing. And after he's dealt with the idols, it's Passover time. Again, he tries to unify what's left of Israel so a remnant will return. He sends a letter, the length and breadth of the land, the 12 tribes, and he's, he's, he's inviting them to a new Passover. He's inviting them in repentance. He's saying, if you return to the Lord, then your fellow Israelites and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will return to the land. 
For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So this, you know, he's sending out a message of repentance and hope. And he's, he's really, he's heard what Isaiah has preached. He's saying, don't be stiff-necked. Return to the Lord that he may return to you. And instead, most of Israel just mock him. It's this word, harap, scornful mocking. And um, it's the same as what um, the general Rabshakeh is going to do later in the book. He's going to do that at the city walls of Jerusalem. And um, it's, it's underlines just that um, the nation of Israel is going to become like Sodom. It's the same word that's used for that's used for the mocking that Lot endured whenever he's trying to leave Sodom by the people of Sodom. And um, it's the same word that's used of Michael whenever she's mocking David in front of, when he's dancing in front of the ark. But the um, crazy thing is that uh, Remnant does return. And it's from Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun. These uh, smaller tribes that you read of, the, the, the stony ground, the sticks that they come out of. And Isaiah, Isaiah 11 talks about the return from the four corners of the earth. And he makes a start. And you read that Hezekiah intercedes for these people that were returning, but they weren't prepared for Passover. May the Lord, who's good, pardon everyone who sets their heart in seeking God, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, even if they aren't clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. And the Lord hears them and he heals the people. And so the man whose father excludes the people from even entering the temple, he's interceding for cleanness and for healing in the temple, same as David. And the Passover happens a month later than usual. You sort of think that's, that's a bit chaotic. It sounds a bit thrown together. But, and it, 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 it was, it, you can see that in a lot of the details whenever they're describing that. <coughs> But this is actually done according to Numbers 9. You could actually find back in Numbers 9, the, anyone who's unclean, they can have the Passover a month later, on the same day, but a month later. And um, so he, he recognizes that the nation's unclean. And there's no pretense there. He's not trying to say, well, we're just, this is everything back to normally. He's, there's a real contrition to it. There's a reality to it. And you might think he's more pressing needs to be, doing and just like with governing and making sure that the borders are secure etc and making sure that he's taxing but he's been listening to Isaiah he knows that the people have to have the God of the Exodus if there's to be any chance here any chance of surviving so he goes on he's prudent he sets up these storehouses points seven Levites to look after the people to serve people food he witnesses he witnesses Israel fall to Sargon not long thereafter, and after they stop paying tribute to to Gleth-Pleaser and Sargon, and there's mass deportation, and the ten tribes are suddenly no more. Hezekiah makes preparation, though he he um, he engineers great works. He builds the walls of Jerusalem again. He um, he drills wells. He builds water courses so that the People are going to have spring water inside the walls if they're besieged. He also makes a rather rash move. So he either stops paying tribute or else he changes allegiance to Egypt. We're not really sure which. But if any of you have seen one of these, this is a broadband contract. Um, So just so you know, that is the hardest thing in human history to get out of than a a military agreement with the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Um, but if it is a change to an Egyptian provider, then it's enough to make Isaiah go around in a loincloth for three years, uh, decrying Egypt. But Assyria's had a big wobble during this, and it makes it seem like a really good strategic move. Uh, Sargon dies unexpectedly in, in battle. He's fighting a very small nation, and they capture him, and they take, him, take his body, and they take it away, and the army can't get at it and um, it's a massive shame for the for the nation of, of Assyria and it's a big blow and it does take them a while to recover but it's time for another 
player to take the stage. So this man, Sennacherib, had already been ruling for about 10 years as the crown prince in Nineveh. Remember Nineveh from, from the book of Jonah? Well, might have repented in Jonah's time, but this is much later. And uh, it's a very different man in charge now. Um, but we should take a wee bit of a look at what motivates these Assyrian kings. So both Sargon and Sennacherib are really into reading these legendary journeys. Okay? Their version of Hercules is this uh, ancient Sumerian king Gilgamesh. So when, when Nineveh is rediscovered in the 18th or 19th century, rather, the palace there is this massive collection, this massive library of correspondence and victory cylinders and walls of, of you know, uh, gypsum plaques on the walls everywhere. And there's also thousands of clay tablets with these legends just written down. And whenever they've eventually managed to decipher them, which is about 50 years after they're discovered, uh, they discover that they're all just, a lot of them are just legendary journeys. A lot of them are about this man, Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh in, basically is this ancient hero on the, on the left, the guy that's just carrying a lion like it's nothing. Um, but he was the, the ancient king over Uruk, the biggest city in the known world at the time. Um, so he, in his journey, he travels to a cedar forest. He kills a giant. He fights a bull of heaven. He seeks out this Noah equivalent who's um, survived the flood in a big fort in a hill on a mountain. He descends to the underworld. He returns home in victory. And the Assyrians really, really internalized that, uh, believe it or not. Sennacherib's drawn exactly the same way as Gilgamesh is, is depicted. You know, he's basically fighting lions, 20 foot tall, just there's no one really like him. And um, so he wasn't just a king, he was an M&S king, okay? So um, titles that they chose, Sennacherib, great king, mighty king, king of the world, king of Assyria, king of the four quarters of the, of the earth, the four corners of the earth, and um, favorite of the great gods. But as for worship, they have this full pantheon, the same as the Greeks and Romans would have, the, you know, the sort of Neptune, etc., you know, all of those guys, Venus. But the, the guy that um, Sennacherib really, really wants to get after in his early days as king, before he goes out in his missions, he can't understand how his fathers died so easily. So he, um, he builds a temple to this god. It's a god, it's called Nergal, who's the Assyrian god of inflicted death, war and plague. So there's this interest in symmetry going on in the two kingdoms. You have, in one hand, you've got this revival for Yahweh in, happening in Judah. And at the same time, there's this uh, revival of death and war in Assyria. And um, so he sets out. He puts down this Babylonian revolt really easily. And then in 701, he turns his attention to the West. And anyone who's standing in his way would have felt like this guy is coming after you, you know, Darth Vader's coming after the rebel alliance because they were rebels. Or uh, even better, it might have been this guy. So Sean Dyke puts on his gauntlet and goes out after the, uh, after the Infinity Gems. You know, and he might even have said, I am inevitable. You know, he might have had that. He probably did. He's... It's that, but it's that sort of impact on the people that they, they would have seen that coming, that like death is coming for us. I'll refer you back to Isaiah 5. He's, he's been telling the people this, been, this has been coming for years. Death expands its jaw. Yahweh whistles for those at the ends of the earth to come. Arrows are sharp. They roar like young lions. You know, when it comes to Isaiah's opinion of Sennacherib though, Basically, from chapter 10 to 11, Isaiah talks about Assyria as being that rod that he's going to use to punish Zion. He's going to be that axe in the hand of God. He's going to use to destroy the mighty trees of the nations. Lebanon's going to fall, 
And that's why Jesse's left as this stump. And then from chapters 12 to 24, it's all about the nations round about Israel that are going to be in a serious way. They're going to be dealt with by Sennacherib. And the Judeans can't be in any doubt and they see it happen in real time. He lists them, his oracles, these burdens, Assyria's coming for Babylon, the Philistines, Moab, Damascus, Cush, Egypt, Babylon again, Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem, Tyre. And when he's finished with his work, he's going to punish the king of Assyria. He's going to be compared to the Egyptians in the Exodus. He's going to have defeat like the Midianites versus Moses. He's going to be compared to the Leviathan and Job a lot. And all he's going to be able to do is shake his fist at Jerusalem. Sennacherib gets as far as the outskirts of Judah. He blockades Jerusalem. He sets siege against Lachish and Azekah. Lachish is the second biggest city in Judah. It's a military town. So Sennacherib bases his operation there. He plants his throne. He watches progress and he sends messengers back and forth to Hezekiah. And it's all pictured by the Assyrians in their palace walls. And they aren't shy about showing how bad it gets. He, he makes really short work of, of Lachish, even though it's really quite a substantial town, quite a substantial city, and really well defended. Um, so he builds this ramp up to the walls, up to the gate rather, and by the time he's done, the men inside, they're using bone to make their arrowheads. They don't even have any metal or flint. And um, he flays and peels the rulers, the leaders, whoever's left there, he um, deports. He makes them play music on the way to Assyria, to Babylon. And for everyone in Jerusalem, the writing's on the wall. And the siege is going on. Hezekiah pleads with Sennacherib and he's saying, I've done wrong, withdraw from me, I'll pay you whatever you want, whatever you demand. He sends a ransom, he empties his treasury, 300 talents of gold, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. He strips the gold off the doors of the temple because lives are at stake. And um, instead of that, Rabshaki comes down. He comes with an army to the walls of Jerusalem and he, he, he's, he taunts Hezekiah's advisors and the men on the wall. And he, he's heard this obviously from Sennacherib, but he, he shouts to them about uh, Egypt, that they're putting their trust in Egypt. And he shouts at them about the, the trust that they're putting in the Lord. And he taunts, taunts Yahweh, which is a bad idea, but he, he does it. And um, he says, you know, where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Where are the gods of Arphad? And the reason he picks those countries is even like they're thousands of miles away. But... Um, just recently, they'd had the deportations and the colonization of, uh, of Israel, and all of the gods of Arphad and Sepharvaim were actually just right next door in Samaria. And um, it's, a, it's a taunt there that's just saying, you're next, you know. And um, when, when word gets to Hezekiah, he, um, he, he gets a bit of despair creeping in. Now, he speaks really bravely to the men on the walls and tells them about faith. He's, he tries to be like Elisha. He says, there's more with us than those that are against us. But uh, when he gets the news from Eliakim, he puts on sackcloth and he sends his servants out to find Isaiah because he, he, Isaiah is not just, he's not just there right, right at hand. He has to be looked for. And here's how you know that Isaiah and him are close this is what Hezekiah says. He says, This is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the moment of birth and there's no strength to deliver them. It might be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, that he will rebuke him for all the words your Lord, the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. So, yeah, on one hand, Hezekiah hasn't quite taken hold of God here when he's saying, you're God. But this has a sense of what's the past 10 years, what's the past 10, 15 years all been about? If the city's going to fall, if the temple's going to be destroyed, if the people are exiled, what have we been working for? And, but the interesting part here is, is, is not the, the content here, but it's, it's that he's actually, 
he's actually quoting Isaiah back to Isaiah. He's um, he's um, he's finishing um, he's finishing Isaiah's sentences here. You know, there, there's that relationship. And in verse 17 of Isaiah 27, you'll you'll see that we were with child, we writhed in labour, and we've brought forth wind. It's for willow, uh, yay. Um, and um, Isaiah responds when they find him. He says, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Don't be afraid of what you've heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria has blasphemed me with. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I'll make him want to return to his own country. And there I will have him cut down with the sword. And, um, you know, news comes really soon after then to Sennacherib that Egypt's on the move and Sennacherib tactically has to move away from from Jerusalem at least. But he maintains a blockade and once once he takes care of the Egyptians, he'll be back. And he, he sends this last minute letter directly to Hezekiah and that was a mistake. But it's the same message again, the same words that Rabshakeh used, saying give up, don't let God deceive you. And this time... It's, uh, it's personal. So you see Hezekiah goes to the temple directly, put it in front of the Lord. And he prays to the living God himself. And there's no intermediary sees time this time. He just, he says, Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the nations of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words. Snacker was sent to ridicule the living God. It's true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have led waste all these peoples and their lands, have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they weren't gods, but only wood and stone. But now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. <coughs> and it's been 30 years since Josiah had vacated the temple and he, here he is there to intercede before the Lord um, there's no lights or fireworks in here of any glory fallen but um, soon after Isaiah sends him and says the Lord heard you he gets a message back from Isaiah that the Lord's seen him and he speaks against Sennacherib and this is where the turn is. Because the prophet who started his book talking about Judah as being like Sodom now has a change in his tone. And he says, Virgin daughter Zion, he says, The virgin daughter of Zion despises you and mocks you. Daughter Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who have you raised your voice against in pride? The Holy One of Israel. So, not only is there going to be victory, but the the city is redeemed. The city is cleaned in the eyes of the Lord. And he goes on and lists the great things that Sennacherib had sent to do uh, in that, and this is in the Isaiah account, he lists the things that Sennacherib had done and aimed to do in the shape of Gilgamesh. And he says, long ago I ordained this. And now, just like Leviathan, like who can put a hook in the mouth of Leviathan? He's, um, Yahweh's going to put a hook in his nose and a bit in his mouth. And he's going to be turned back. And that night, Sennacherib, who's preparing to have battle with Egypt, he, um, he finds that the angel of the Lord comes into the camp and kills 185,000 men. And the, the Lord of Terror himself is um, put to shame. So you see the similarity to the Exodus, the death at the Red Sea, the death of the firstborn. And um, in the morning, Sennacherib has no choice except to pack up his bags and go home. Um the news of that doesn't really travel very fast and there's an aftermath to all of this. 
It's happening at the same time, but it's written. You can't write things at the same time, obviously. So there's this. Rosa Kleb figure comes up after he's dealt with the mighty man. There's a sting in the tail. And um, Hezekiah has been sick all this time, it turns out. And the Lord sends Isaiah to prepare his effects. He's soon going to die. He won't recover. And we can suppose at this time that he doesn't actually know that the nation's going to be delivered for sure, for sure yet. Um, so he's got a serious skin infection. And the thing about that is sackcloth and fasting and ashes. It leads to skin infections and sores and infection. And from the sole of his foot to the top of his head, there's no soundness. There's only these wounds and welts. These open sores and infection. And um, he's literally broken his body interceding for the nation. And um, once Isaiah leaves the room, he turns around and he prays. He knows that God hears his prayer. He knows the nature of God now. God sees him praying again. Isaiah has to turn around within, within the palace itself because God hears him. But he, he says, Remember, Lord, I have now, now I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion I've done what's good in your eyes. And he weeps bitterly. It's remember. It's not a prayer that says, you know, raise me up even. It's just remember me. So Isaiah has to literally just turn his heel and go right back in and say, this is what the Lord says. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I'm going to add 15 years to your life. And what's more, I'm going to deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I'm going to defend the city. And it's a great reversal of what happens to Uzziah and his condition. And um, the difference is humility there. So he's come to know the Lord while he's been interceding. And he knows that the nature of the Lord, he can just turn his head and speak. And he knows that he's heard, which I think is really, really important. And years later, Isaiah hears about the suffering servant in chapter 53 and how he's going to extend his days. And he knows exactly what Yahweh is, going to, is talking about there. He's already seen it. He's already seen a, a form of it. And Hezekiah is confirmed as being just as mighty before the Lord as Joshua. It's only the second recorded time in history of the Bible that we see God intervened in the course of the sun across the sky as this sundial goes backwards. And that's actually scientifically possible, believe it or not. Um, but only if it happens at a summer solstice with a very specific type of sundial that Ahaz, who worshipped all the host of heaven, might well have picked up on. And if that's true, then it means that there is plenty more time for Sennacherib to do his campaigning in the summer months. But for some reason, he's just not able to. Who knows why? It's just, it's not recorded in his palace for some reason. Don't know why. But he has to take the loss and he goes home and he leaves Hezekiah behind as the uh, survivor of his flood. He survives the flood in a fort on the mountain. So he appoints an heir after this, but the oldest two boys object and they kill him in his own temple. And Hezekiah sings a great song of praise and thanks at the same time. And if you read the, the whole thing through, you'll see he's a really good poet. And he takes bits from Job and the, the story of Joseph and from David. He talks about the weaver's shuttle and the lion that's been sent to break his bones. He talks about the Lord's plan. So I'm going to read it. He says, In the prime of my life must I go through the gates of death. Must I be, I be robbed of the rest of my years? I said, I will not again see the Lord himself in the land of the living. No longer will I look on my fellow man or be with those who now dwell in this world. Like a shepherd's tent, my house has been pulled down and taken from me. Like a weaver, I've rolled up my life and he has cut, up, he's cut me off from the loom. 
Day and night you made an end of me. I waited patiently till dawn, but like a lion he broke all my bones. Day and night you made an end of me. I cried like a swift or a thrush. I moaned like a morning dove. My eyes grew weak as I looked to the heavens. I am being threatened. Lord, come to my aid. But what can I say? He has spoken to me, and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things people live, and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health and let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. For the grave can't praise you. Death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit can't hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, they praise you, as I am doing today. Parents tell their children about your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we will sing with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of the Lord. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed, conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who shall be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, but as it is written, for your sake we face death all day. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so he concludes that he's, he's going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Later on in Isaiah, of course, um, Hezekiah acts unwisely and invites in the Babylonian delegation. He shows them all his riches. And the account of Hezekiah ends on a dull note. And Isaiah confirms that he's only put off the inevitable. And you might say that's that's a zero-sum game there. He's two generations later. Judah goes into exile anyway. All Hezekiah can say about it is not while I'm alive. Um, but very few of us can really affect anything that happens 50 years from now, 70 years from now. All we can really do is what's during our lifetime and, you know, even maybe even only the next couple of days is what you can actually affect. Um, if I were to take one lesson away from Hezekiah, I'd say, I'd say lead, become a leader, um, Become a leader in repentance, okay? Anyone can do that. Um, we are we're a um, nation of kings and priests before the Lord. It's up to us to do that. It's up to us to lead in repentance. It's up to us to lead in intercession, to lead in prayer. For Hezekiah, the discovery of God's goodness was there in the sackcloth, in the intercession, long after he'd got rid of the idols. Um, so if we want to deliver those children that he was talking about, the, if we want to deliver our city, then 
we have to labour in that. We have to lead in intercession. Um, have to come before the Lord. Something have to sort of live off others' experience. We have to live it. And um, everything that we seek to do in the world outside is to build the kingdom now. It's not about what's going to happen 50 years from now. All we can do is live in the present and, you know, live in our own dark times. Not submit to our own besieging factors or what out, what's out in the world. All we can do is try and change the present. We can lead in repentance. We can lead by not submitting. You know, you can say, am I going to submit? The answer should be, well, not while I'm alive. And um, the 24-7 prayer thing is, is coming through in the next month. Um, and obviously it's a very good opportunity to do that um, and to make that part of our lifestyle. Um, obviously for Hezekiah that was 27 seven prayer because of the moving back and the sundial and so on but you know it, it's still it's still there and um, I just think that you know if we can close in prayer we just say Lord can you please anoint us with your spirit to become that nation of priests and kings before you to lead this nation and this city and this town in repentance and deliver children for the, for the, for the nation, for the kingdom of God, in your name. Amen.